this week, we are in Romans 8.29 and 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 18. Romans 8.29 and 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 18. As most of you know, we are taking an extended season to look at Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30, and we are looking at little individual ideas found in those three verses of Romans 8, and we are diving in deep and exploring those ideas and what the rest of the Bible teaches about those ideas. So today, we're going to look at what it means to be conformed to the image of Jesus So that he may be the firstborn among many brothers. That's uh, the second part of Romans 8.29. Last week we looked at predestination. And we saw that our God is a God who predestines. I tried to unpack that as much as I could from lots of different places in the Bible. But what did he predestine us for? In Romans 8.29 it says he predestined us. To be conformed to the image of his son. So God predestined us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So we are going to, that will be our focus today. But for our discussion, I want us to be in 2 Corinthians 3 verses 4 through 18. We've got uh, Bibles in the center of the table, so grab those if you would. And uh, what we're going to do is I'm going to read the passage. And I'd like you to follow along with me. And then you'll have the opportunity to read the passage for four or five minutes yourself. And then we'll have a discussion where each person gets to share their observations and ask questions about what they see in the text. It's kind of like a you know, 15 or 20 minute exploration uh, in, in a table setting. And then we'll go back to the other room for the sermon. So 2 Corinthians 3. Verses 4 through 18. It's uh, page 1067 if you're in a blue Bible. Page 1067 if you're in a blue Bible. All right, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ... Toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has, you know what? Stop. Let me give you some context here. Don't know why I didn't do that. Um, 2 Corinthians is Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. He got that church started, he wrote a letter, he paid him a visit. After the visit, a lot of people there were trying to discredit his ministry and to just, they they were saying he was an imposter, all that stuff. Second Corinthians is him defending his ministry, him defending himself and saying, no, I am bringing to you the message of God and you need to trust me. And he's defending himself against the false accusations and all the bad stuff coming his way. And here in this chapter that we're reading today, his focus is he's saying, I'm bringing to you the message of the new covenant. I'm bringing to you the message of Jesus Christ. I am not bringing to you the message of the old covenant or some other message. This is the message of Jesus. So what we're going to read today 
there's a lot of mention of the new covenant, and he is defending himself. But as we read, you'll see how it's connected to Romans 8.29. So I'll start over. Verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, so that He, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brothers. What does that mean? Why does it matter? How does that change our life? How does it help us? How should we think in light of those truths? So Jesus is shaping us. He made us, right? He owns us. He is Lord over us. Every single part of our being, we owe to him. He is sustaining all things, as it says in Colossians chapter 1. Last week in Romans 9, we saw the pot say to the potter, why did you make me this way? The pot said to the potter, why did you make me this way? How would you feel if you were building something or creating something and it looked at you and said, why did you build me like this? It's absurd to think that the creature can speak to the creator and find fault with the creator. And, and that, that's the sin of man. That's where we're at when we're born. That's how we act and how we do things. 
And what we saw in Romans 9 last week was that God has prepared some vessels or some people for mercy and for honorable use and for other vessels for wrath and dishonorable use. And it's a difficult passage and we're going to deal with it more closely in a few weeks. We're going to take a better look at it. But I bring it up this morning to say that God is the potter and we are the clay. And if you belong to God, He has a purpose and a plan for you. He wants you to be a certain way. He wants you to be like Jesus. And He is molding you and shaping you to be exactly what He wants you to be. So what's our job? Our job is to be moldable and shapeable and let Him fashion us however He well pleases. So in Romans 8.29, He says, you are going to, like God has predestined you. It is your destiny. He determined it ahead of time, way before you can make any decision for yourself. And He decided for you as an individual to make you like Jesus. See, when Jesus was here, he could only be in one place at a time, right? It's kind of hard to change the whole world like that, right? But what if half of the population of the world was like Jesus? The work of Jesus would get done more effectively, faster, more frequently, and more people could see God because they would see him in his people. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, open up if you would. As I shared earlier, there are some people, and there are Bibles under most of the seats. You can grab one if you don't have one. There are some people in Corinth, in this city that he spent, I believe it was 18 months. He, he spent a lot of time there. He knew these people well. He started the church there. He left and then people began to say some really awful things about him and were trying to destroy his ministry and his work. And we're not surprised that this has happened. I mean, over and over again, the Bible says those who do the work of God, they will be persecuted. Those who walk with Jesus will suffer like Jesus suffered. So Paul is writing this second letter to the Corinthians to defend his ministry. And in the particular passage that we're looking at today... He says very, very clearly that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. He said that, you know, what you see in me is not because of me. I don't deserve any recognition in and of myself, but anything I have done has been because of the work of God in me. That's how he starts in the first few verses of our passage. And then he talks about the fading glory of the old covenant. And then he talks the more powerful, abundant, greater, brighter glory of the new covenant. And that the glory of the new covenant was so much greater that the glory of the old covenant was fading away and looked like nothing in comparison to the glory of the new covenant. Now, what's the old covenant? What's the new covenant? You know how your Bibles are Old Testament and New Testament? The word testament just means old covenant. I'm sorry, the word testament just means covenant. So our Bibles are divided up with this distinction in mind. All of the Old Covenant was written before Jesus came. And then Jesus came. 
He initiated the new covenant. The Old Testament said the new covenant would come. The Old Testament prophesied about it. The Old Testament sought to prepare the Jewish people and the world for the coming new covenant. And then Jesus came. And and, and we say each week, you know, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. His blood in that cup was... And it was the perfect blood of the only human sacrifice that would ever be needed. And that blood was so perfect and so glorious that it wiped out all the blood of the animals that they had to give over and over and over again under the Old Covenant. So in our passage today, he talks about the Old Covenant being a ministry of condemnation and the New Covenant being a ministry of righteousness. What does that mean? Well, think about the law of God, and, and particularly the Ten Commandments. You know, God showed His righteousness. He showed His standard. He said, these are my rules. He said, this is what I am like, and this is how you are to live. This is how you are to behave. It was His law, and He was the law giver. He was the legislator. He's also the judge. Well, What did we do with his law? You and I broke it. So did everybody else, except for Jesus. And when we broke his law, we became criminals, and thus we were condemned in God's courtroom. See, the law has a purpose, and the law is good. We saw that in Romans 7 a few months ago. We don't get rid of the law, but we must not, under the new covenant try to obey the law so that we can be saved. The law does not offer you forgiveness. And if you decide to wake up one day and try to be better than you were by following the law, hoping that God will accept you if you're good enough, He will never accept you because the law only shows you your sin. It does not provide you righteousness. But the new covenant provides righteousness because... Jesus, as a loving and perfect Savior, offers His righteousness to anyone who believes and comes to Him on His own terms. We do not come to God on our terms, and we have people that try to do that. You cannot come to God on your own terms. But if you receive Christ by faith under the terms of the new covenant as spelled out in the Bible, then you receive Jesus' perfect Righteousness, And let me tell you what, when you do that, you're never the same. You change. We all change when we believe in Jesus. Big time. So, with all that being said, we get to verse 12. We have such a hope, and we are very bold. We are very bold. What do we do with this boldness? You all, we behold the glory of God. Look at verse 18. We behold the glory of God. We get to see Him in all of His wonder, His splendor, His majesty. We have access to Him. But before we come to Christ and believe in Him for salvation, 
We can't see Him because we have a veil over us. The glory of God is veiled. We cannot see Him as He is. But we are bold to look at God because we have God's very righteousness. And God has removed the veil when we turn to the Lord, as this passage says. So now that we've turned to the Lord, we can see Him. We can see Him as He is. Now, in this life, we're not going to be able to see Him fully. But there is a life to come, right? And, and that, well, I'm going to get ahead of myself. But there is a life to come, and we will see Him more fully and more accurately there at that time. So verse 18 We all, with unveiled face, remember Christ has removed the veil because we have turned to him because of the work of his spirit, as the end of verse 18 says. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What did Romans 8.29 say? God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of God. Of his son Jesus. We are the pot. We are the clay. Our God is the potter. And he is shaping each one of us. To look like. And behave. Like Jesus. And it says. From one degree of glory to another. When I see that. It makes me think. About our Christian life. From the time we're converted. To the time we die. Aren't we gradually growing in righteousness. Do you remember our catechism, question 32, what do justification and sanctification mean? Justification is our declared righteousness before God. But sanctification is our gradual growing righteousness. God is sanctifying us. He is setting us apart for holy use. And as the months, weeks, days, weeks, months, and years go by, we become more and more like our Lord We act like him, we talk like him, we smell like him, we dig ditches like him, we drive nails like him, we love our neighbors like him. We do more and more things like him. And we're one chapter of life after another. We change from one degree of glory to another. Well, how do we change? How is it that a person changes? Verse 18 says we change when we behold the glory of the Lord. There are times in every Christian's life where they feel stuck. Why am I not moving forward? What is it that I am missing? How do I stop doing this or doing that? I keep having little lies slip out of my mouth. I keep looking at things I shouldn't look at. I, I keep just harboring bitterness in my heart. You know, what what... What has to give for me to change and put these things down forever? The answer in verse 18 is we behold the glory of the Lord. See, what you look at is often what you trust. And when we believe, we are always looking at whatever we're believing in. And biblical faith has to do with holding on to something, grabbing hold of someone. And so if you are going to believe in Jesus, then that means you are gazing at him. He is the glory of God. 
We saw his glory on this earth. First, uh, actually, John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, I think it says, full of grace and truth. See, when Jesus was here, we got to behold his glory. But he's not here right now. He's back in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God. But we as Christians who have his word, we can still see him, can't we? We can still look at him. We can still behold his glory, knowing that the glory that we see now is only just a foretaste. It's only a glimpse of the glory that we're going to see long term. That's how we change. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. I bring that passage up all the time. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We've got to look. We've got to look. If you want to change, then look at Jesus and don't take your eyes off of him. There is hope for every one of us. We can change. We can be like our Lord. We don't have to keep going the way of the world and the way of the devil. We don't have to keep falling into the same sin over and over and over again. God is conforming us to be like Jesus from one degree of glory to another. And as more time goes by, and as we become more like Jesus, we experience more and more glory. And let me tell you what, once you get a little taste of that glory of God, it's more incredible than anything you've ever seen before, and you just want more. That's how Christians change. They get a glimpse of God, and He is so incredible, so beautiful, so majestic, so amazing. All of a sudden, they have an off day or two, and they go back to their old way of life, and it's like, man... I can't believe I was eating that stuff my whole life. That is disgusting. It is sick. I want the feast that God has offered to me. The feast that I've tasted. I want to eat from His table. And I'm not going back to that old way of life. You taste and see that the Lord is good. The psalmist says. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So we don't change primarily through our own efforts. We don't change just because we say, you know what, I'm going to put that bottle down and I'm never going back to it. And I'm just going to get really, really strong and really, really tough. And and, and I'm going to stand up this time and work myself into a frenzy. That's not how we change. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't require effort. Okay? But our efforts to change must be empowered by God, and we cannot change with our own strength, but we change because we're looking at the glory of the Lord and we're holding on to the glory of the Lord, and God is changing us. The things that took us away from God are no longer as appetizing as they once were, and the life we now live is so satisfying because there's nothing like the glory of God. I want to tell you that our gospel is not just about getting our sins forgiven, getting fire insurance to make sure we go to heaven. But our gospel is all about becoming more like our king. And his name is Jesus. Amen. Amen. Our gospel is more like becoming like our king. And his name is Jesus. In our passage, we also see that we're no longer blind. But we can see clearly because the spirit has removed the veil. We don't remove the veil because we believed. No, we believe because the Spirit comes upon us. And when we believe, the veil is removed. And that just confirms what we've learned the last few weeks, that God is sovereign over every single aspect of our salvation. 
So, what are the implications of this? Think question number three. How do we respond to this person, uh, this passage? Well, you know, when I think about a, a big church perspective or a whole congregation, you know, we expect people who claim to be Christians to actually act like a Christian. And many of you have been through our church constitution. Many of you have joined the church. Some of you are planning to do it soon. But in our church constitution, we clearly state that Christians are supposed to behave a particular way. And that is in, in, in this passage here. You know, you can't say I'm a Christian and then refuse to be conformed to the image of Jesus. You can't say I'm going to live how I want and just have Jesus on my own terms because you're not becoming like Jesus. You can't be a pot and say, oh, I want a different potter. I'm going to a different pottery barn because I don't like how you're shaping me. If that's what you're doing, then you're not letting the potter shape you and you would be qualified as a vessel prepared for destruction, as it says in Romans chapter 9. See, when Christ saves someone, he removes the veil. And when we see him, we change. When we see him, we change. So if you're going to call yourself a Christian, all of us should expect you to be going through this process of becoming more like Jesus and not just doing your own thing and not rejecting the word of God. So this transformation, it is part of what the new covenant provides. This transformation that we read about in verse 18 is the result of the new covenant, of someone coming into this covenant with God. How do we come into the covenant with God? In this new covenant with God, we trust Jesus Christ. He is the mediator of the new covenant. He is the one who is in charge of it. His blood is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant provides this transformation and the old covenant has never done so. So verse 18 we see a phrase, we're being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. I've already touched on that a little bit. The different chapters and seasons of our life go by and we become more and more like Jesus. But there is an ultimate degree or a final degree that we have to acknowledge. We see us going from one degree of glory to another in this life. But what happens after this life? Well, when we die, our soul will be with God in heaven and our body stays here on the earth. But there will come a day when Christ returns and our soul and our body will be reunited. Our soul and our body will, will be reunited. The Bible calls that our resurrection or our glorification. See, transformation is possible in this life. And, and it is necessary for the Christian. But there is an ultimate degree of glory. Think back to Romans 8, verse 30. What's it say? It says, those he called, he justified. And those he justified, justify means to declare someone not guilty. To those he justified, he glorifies. We're going to look at that last word in verse 30 in about three weeks, I think. What does it mean to be glorified? It means to be restored 
to your original glory. The original glory of man in the garden before Adam and Eve disobeyed God was unlike anything that we can ever imagine. And I will tell you that our salvation is just one long process of God undoing the devastating effects of sin in us as individuals and in the world. And our salvation will be complete when we are glorified, when we receive a new and perfect body. The Bible has, teaches on this throughout Romans chapter 8. Uh, several years ago, it was actually 2020, it was when COVID was trying to screw up our lives as hard as it could. But I preached eight sermons on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And all of those sermons were about our resurrection. Christ was the first fruits of the resurrection. He was the first one to rise from the dead. But then we get to rise from the dead too. So turn to Philippians chapter 3 if you would. Philippians chapter 3, uh, 17. If you're using the Blue Bible, it's page 1085. You know, we're going to start in verse 20. Philippians 3, verse 20. Philippians 3, verse 20. Page 1085 in the Blue Bible. Paul writes this about the spinal degree of glory. Verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a reference to the second coming. He's coming back. Amen? Amen. Who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body? That is our resurrection. When He returns, we await a Savior. And when He comes, He will do what? He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. If you've been around here long, you've heard my spiel. I give it often. You got your aches and pains now. You're ready for things to be made right. You're ready for a body that doesn't hurt, a body that doesn't get sick, a body that is not decaying slowly as we inch towards death. Well, this is it. This is when you get that body. And oh, what a great day that will be. So he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So when you see that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, I want you to know that that transformation is taking place now. But it will not be complete until Jesus returns. You have that? Think about timeline, cosmic, big story timeline. In this life, between now and the time we die, we are continuously being transformed as we behold the glory of God. But the ultimate and final transformation will take place when Jesus returns and when our soul meets our body. And God puts us back together again and restores us to the glory of humanity without sin. What a great day that is going to be. So, Romans 8.29. We're done in 2 Corinthians 3. But all this is done. We are being conformed to the image of God, of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Many brothers. Think about that. Many brothers. What in the world is God doing, y'all? Y'all, God's making a big family. That's what He's doing. 
God is making a very, very big, awesome, wonderful family. And it's going to be better than any family you've ever been a part of. I promise you. So, um, when it says that so that Jesus would be the firstborn, cults take this. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and you know, folks who twist the Scriptures, they take this passage and a few others like it, and they say, look, see, Jesus was born just like us. The word in the Greek actually has nothing to do with that. Absolutely nothing to do with him having a beginning. The Lord Jesus Christ is eternal. There was never a time when he was not. He has always existed, and he is the creator. He is not created. So we reject that. Well, if that's not what it means, then what does it mean that Jesus is the firstborn? It means that he is supreme. It means that he is preeminent. Is that a word you use often? Probably not. Preeminent. Can we say that word together? Preeminent. He is exalted above all other creatures. Creatures. So go to uh, Colossians 1, and you'll see Colossians 1. Well, we're not going to turn there, but if you go to Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, you will see clearly that Christ is supreme over all authorities, all powers, all dominions, all kings, all rulers. Psalm 89, verse 27, God says this about Jesus, I will make him the firstborn. The highest of the kings of the earth. I will make him the firstborn, God says. The highest of the kings of the earth. And if you go back to Colossians 1, Paul writes that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. That's another reference to his resurrection. That is another reference to Jesus' resurrection. See, before Jesus came to earth as a baby... He was in heaven with God, and he didn't have a physical body. He was conceived in his mother Mary. He had a physical body at that time. He died Friday evening. He was separated from his physical body. His soul was in what's called Sheol, or the place of the dead. And then Sunday morning, his soul was united to his body in that tomb, and he walked out of it. He was on the earth for about 40 days after his resurrection, and then he ascended into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God his Father. But you know what? He's a man just like me. Amen. He's got a body and fingers and toes. Now, he's glorified. Okay, so in, in that sense, he's not like me or you or us. But he is a physical human, soul and body united, and he's sitting there in heaven waiting to return. And everyone else who walks with God, who is in heaven, their soul is there, but their body is not. But Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. So that means he is the first to be resurrected. Another thing about the firstborn, the Old Testament says that the firstborn child, firstborn son that is, receives a double portion of the inheritance. So if your neighbor has three boys and five girls, then the firstborn son gets 
Well, let me say it like this. If there's three girl, three, this is one of my illustrations I make up as I go, forgive me, bear with me. But if there's two girls and three boys, then the inheritance would be divided four ways. And the, the girls don't get an inheritance. They are to be married and come under the inheritance of someone else. But the oldest boy, he gets two of the four shares of the inheritance. And the second born son, the third born son, gets a single share of the inheritance. So the first born son is always preeminent. The first born son gets the greatest share of the inheritance. Well, here's what's amazing to this about me. Or, or amazing to me about this. Romans 8.17, we covered it a few weeks ago. It says we are ch- children of God and fellow heirs with Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn. He gets the greatest inheritance. But here Paul writes, we are fellow heirs. We receive the inheritance that belongs to Christ. How good And incredible is our Father in heaven. That he would give all of his children the inheritance of his firstborn son. So Romans 8.29, it goes on to say, So that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. How does it feel knowing that you are a brother of Jesus? Now, in the New Testament... When you see the word brothers, it often means brothers and sisters. So ladies, you're not being left out. All right? How awesome is it that we are brothers of Jesus? He is our big or older brother. When you look at other things we've learned in the Bible, it only makes sense. Several weeks ago in Ephesians 1, we saw that we were predestined to be adopted as the children of God. So just like God predestined us, he's, he's the potter shaping the clay to be conformed to the image of his son. He also predestined us for adoption as sons. So male and female alike that belong to God, they've received adoption as sons and the sons inherit everything that Christ has inherited. So another time in the Bible when we see that we are brothers of Jesus right after his resurrection. Um, I can't remember which ladies, but immediately after his resurrection, two of the women are there at the tomb. And Jesus appeared. Actually, they had just left the tomb. They realized Jesus wasn't there. And Jesus appeared to them. It was a real quick visit. And Jesus said, go tell my brothers that I am risen from the dead. In Mark chapter 3... Jesus teaches that he who does the will of God is my brother. He who does the will of God is my brother. See, you can't belong to God or say you're in the family of God if you refuse to do his will. In Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus says, or um, the writer of Hebrews says, that Jesus is not ashamed to call his people brothers. How cool is that? We have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. You all, he is making a very, very big family. And this is the fulfillment of the promises that we see throughout the Old Testament. Consider 
Genesis 12. What did God say to Abraham? God chose a wicked man. Abraham was not a godly man. God chose him and initiated a covenant with him. And in that covenant, he says, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. He also said to Abraham, Look up at the stars of the sky. See all those stars, Abraham? That's going to be like your descendants. And he would also say, I'm going to multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. See, Romans 8, 29, he's the firstborn of many brothers. That's the family that God promised to Abraham. That is the family, the new covenant. God is creating the family that God promised to Abraham. I believe what we see, these promises about a great nation, that's the church. That is the people of God. It is not the nation of Israel, but it is the people of God. We are the descendants of Abraham. Read Galatians 3, read Romans 4. There's a number of other places we see that in the Bible. But Romans 8.29 is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Jesus Christ is the firstborn among many brothers, and we are those brothers. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God has made you, if if you're a Christian, do you understand and recognize that God has made you a part of his family? What a gift to be welcomed into his family. Y'all, we need to stand amazed at this great truth that God would be so kind to offer this to anyone and much less to offer it to us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.